Turn over to the gospel to uh, your, your gospel to the gospel of Luke. And this morning, I want to speak to you about the true uh, meaning of Christmas, the true meaning of Christmas. Uh, today, we get Christmas kind of cluttered up with a lot of different stuff, and it's not that this stuff is bad necessarily. Some of it is, but most of it's probably harmless. But it's a matter of keeping our focus and our attention on the reason for the season, that being the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I read an illustration this past week. There was a church who was doing a, uh, you know, their annual Christmas play with all the kids and everything. And uh, they got to the part of the play where the, um, they were going to focus in on the Savior, the newborn Savior in the manger. And uh, they had this special light bulb hid underneath the manger that would shine really bright on the, on the baby. And everything else was going to be dark. And so it would be all the focus of everybody would be on this baby. And at the appropriate moment, the stage lights were turned off. And the poor boy controlling the light board turned them all off. So it was completely dark in this church. And it was kind of an awkward moment, and all of a sudden, you heard one of the shepherd boys, the little kids that were acting, they said, hey, you switched off Jesus. <laughs> Turn him back on. And everybody laughed, obviously. But you know what? Even though we know Christmas is all about the birth of the Savior, it's easy for us. It really is. It's easy for us to get caught up in the cultural approach to the holiday and literally switch off Jesus, switch him off. Um, well, there's nothing wrong with dreaming of a white Christmas or having a Christmas tree or gifts to give exchange to one another. Um, the real meaning of Christmas deals with a much more urgent matter. And I would propose to you this morning that urgent matter is none other than our salvation. If it wasn't for Christ being born, we would have no salvation available to us. Um, and when you stop and you think of Christmas in light of salvation, salvation has little to do with chestnuts roasting on an open fire, even though I love that song. Um, and it doesn't have anything to do with warm and fuzzy feelings of sitting by the, the, uh, you know, the fireplace and looking at the Christmas tree and all the lights. Salvation deals with kind of a messy situation. <laughs> Salvation deals with a messy, fa- messy fact that basically sinners need to be rescued. They need to be rescued from God's judgment. You don't hear that around Christmas time. You, we just don't hear it. God sent his son, beloved, to bear the judgment so that Guilty sinners like you and I, who deserve that judgment, could be forgiven. And you know what? If Christmas time, if none other time of the year, we don't think of the fact that God sent a Savior, I have to tell you, we definitely switched off Jesus. As the angel told the shepherds, That night when Jesus was born in Luke chapter 2, verse 11. For today in the city of David there was, has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The the theme of salvation comes through even through the prophecy of Zacharias in our text this morning in Luke chapter 1. 
He's the father of the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. You remember the story. And so I want to read for us Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67. You can follow along in your Bibles there. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path way of peace. Now remember, this is the father, the father of John the Baptist. You recall that Zacharias was a, a godly man, um, some months before the angel had struck him dumb because he doubted the promise that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a son in their old age. That's back in, in verse 20 there. But now that the son was born and Zacharias's tongue was loosed, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he spoke this prophecy that focuses on literally the great salvation that God offers us and how he was going to bring it about. And basically, the theme of this passage is simply this. Christmas means that God sent us the Savior in the person of Jesus Christ. That God sent us the Savior in the person of Jesus Christ. I would bet that most of us at this time of year, our greatest need at Christmas time is not for more things. Most of us are pretty blessed as a people. We have clothes on our back. We have a roof over our head. We're able to provide. I don't think anybody here is going hungry or lacks of clothing. We've all got plenty of stuff, especially here in America. And so it's not necessarily our greatest need to be kind of just adding more stuff to our stuff list. (laughs) Neither is it for personal fulfillment. And yet, a lot of people think that's what they need. When you talk to people on the street, um, people are madly trying to find personal fulfillment. I would even venture to say our greatest need is not even for the love of family and friends. Even as important as that may be, that's really not our greatest need. 
When you boil it right down, you could go through a list of things, but just for time's sake, the greatest need, beloved, of every person who was ever born is for salvation. That's the greatest need. Because the Bible says that all have sinned, and we've not just sinned against one another, we've sinned against God, who is holy. And the Bible says that if we die in our sins, we will, for all eternity, face the judgment of God. Sometimes you hear people say, oh, if you, if you, if you die without Christ, you're going to be going to hell. And they say, oh, yeah, I'm going to party down there with my friends. That's not what hell's about, beloved. <laughs> it's not a party. Hell wasn't even created for us humans. However, we're going to go there if we don't put our faith and trust and, and trust in Christ for our forgiveness. It was created for Satan and the demons. That's what the Bible says. And the false thing that even some well-meaning Christians say is that, you know what, if you go to hell, you're going to be out of the presence of God for all eternity. That's not really correct. Because the Bible basically tells us that if you go to hell and you die in your sins, you're going to be under the eternal wrath of God. The judgment of God is going to be present even in hell. And even the Psalms tell us, where can I go from your spirit? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to Sheol, hell, you're there. So we have to sometimes be careful of the words we use when we describe places like hell. But that's for all eternity. It's not just for a couple years till you annihilate the body. No. Hell is a place where the body uh, doesn't burn up. Um, it lasts forever. It's a place of torment. It's a place of judgment. And right, rightfully so. See, if God weren't able to judge sinners, then he wouldn't be a just God. If you broke the law and you stood before the judge and say someone robbed your house and you were in the courtroom and you saw the defendant there and, and he pled guilty, yep, I ripped off your house, and I took everything in it. And the judge said, you know what? I, I really commend you on your honesty. You're free to go. What would you say? Wait a minute. <laughs> That's not a just judge. He left this guy off the hook. See, a just judge would never do that. A just judge would have to penalize that crime, that sin. God is a just God. He judges sinfulness. He judges unrighteousness. And God's salvation reconciles us with him, and it gives us a hope both now and for all eternity. Our primary need is to know that we have received God's salvation. And salvation is the theme here in this prophecy from Zacharias. He mentions it in verse 68. He mentions the word redemption. He mentions it again in verse 69, 71, and in verse 77, he uses the word salvation. He uses the word being delivered, the phrase being delivered in verse 74. So it's definitely on his mind. And I want us to draw out four basic principles or four basic themes here as it relates these verses to salvation. And the first one is simply this. Salvation is God's doing, not ours. Salvation is God's doing, not ours. The Bible clearly says that salvation is from the Lord. 
Would you agree with that? I mean, that's what it says. And it, it comes through strongly in these verses. And if you note there in verses 68 and even also in 78, the first phrase there that the, the Lord God says in verse 68 is, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has what? Visited. He has visited. We didn't go searching for him. He came and he visited us. Why? Because he saw us in our sinfulness. He saw us in our helpless condition. He took pity on us. He came down to meet our enormous need in the person of a Savior. Picture yourself out maybe down the ocean or by a riverbank. And you see a little child venturing out into the waves. And pretty soon they're caught up in the, the tumult of the thing. or whatever. What would any normal adult do? They wouldn't just go, oh, look at that kid. It's going to drown. No. Anybody worth their salt would say, man, we've got to save that child. And they'd jump in the water and they would, they would rescue the child because they have compassion on that little infant. That's what God did for us. He had compassion on us. He visited us. And this prophecy is throughout the Old Testament. You want to have some fun with your Bible program or whatever, type in the word visited and go through the Old Testament. It's found in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24 and 25. The theme of God visiting his people. That's where it really comes from. As Joseph was dying in Egypt, remember, he predicted that God would visit his descendants and that he would even bring them from there, this, this land of captivity, to a land that he had promised through an oath to Isaac and Abraham, Abraham Isaac, and Jacob. In the Septuagint, the Greek uses kind of a, a phrase um, from Hebrew. And it, it really means this, that word. You can, you can do a word study of, of that visited us. And it really has the idea that this phrase, it says, in visiting, God will visit you. <laughs> That's really what it means. It's kind of a, a double emphasis. In visiting, God will visit you. It means definitely God will surely visit you. And then Joseph repeats, back in Genesis, at the visitation with which God shall visit you, then you shall carry my bones with you. Now remember, there was an interval of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And we read of God telling Moses in Exodus 3.16, visiting, once again, I have visited you. Also in Exodus chapter 4, also in Exodus chapter 13. And so, even here in Zechariah's time, Zechariah's time, Israel had not heard from the Lord in how many years? 400. 400 years. Silence. God didn't say anything. And now we find the nation of Israel under this yoke of, of Roman oppression. And it seemed almost as if God had somehow forgotten his people. Have you ever been at that point in your life, even as a Christian? We get ourselves in some pretty dire situations sometimes. And when we get in those situations, sometimes we're tempted to think, man, has God forgotten about me? Doesn't God see my needs? Doesn't God care? It seemed as if God had forgotten his people. But then, as the story goes on, after the birth of the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist knowing the angel's promise to Mary that she would bear a son, 
And that son would be the, literally the son of God. Zacharias, is prof, he prophesies and he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us. It's the same theme. Salvation is God's doing. It's his initiative. It's not ours. I mean, if you, if you were living in, in total poverty, you didn't even have a roof over your head, no clothes on your back, and one day a billionaire came to visit you, I'm sure you would have at least a small hope that somehow he would take pity on you and maybe give you some help, give you something. Well, God has done more than that, beloved. He truly has. He not only saw our desperate condition, but he sent us help. He actually took our human condition on himself. The Bible says that he took our sin upon him when he hung on that cross. He became sin for us. He took on human flesh. I mean, I definitely would have done it a little different than God the Father did. If, if, if I was sending my son, I was God, and I was sending my son to earth, I'd probably send him as some mighty king. <laughs> you know, on a royal parade led with horses and all you know hey here he is the son of god he's come to save the world that's not what god did he took on human flesh and even as a little baby he was subject to frailty yet without sin if that weren't enough he even took on himself our own sin bearing the penalty that we deserve and it was all God's doing. It was his, his plan from the beginning, from eternity past. And the reason was, is because verse 78 says that he has mercy. He has tender mercy. Not because we deserved it. You run into a Christian who says, oh yeah, yeah, I, I found God. I got saved. I, made, I did this. I did that. I, you know, it's I, 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 I. Big red flag in my book. Are you thinking you saved yourself? Because last time I checked, God saves us. We don't save ourselves. And he doesn't save us because we deserve it. And God visited us, beloved, in the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are many other evidences in our text that that salvation is God's doing, not ours. It says in verse 68... There that, that basically he, he accomplished it. He redeemed his people. Uh, verse 69, he raised up the horn of salvation. Verse 60, uh, verse, uh, Psalm 132, verse 17, uh, tells us that a horn is a symbol of strength. Such as a, a bull's horn. You ever see those people over, I think it's over in Italy or somewhere, they run in, in the streets with those wild bulls? Spain, that's crazy. That's just crazy. I mean, they get, you know, those bulls are just powerful things. They have those sharp horns. And these nutty people are out there running in the streets with them. Yeah, it's in Spain, not Italy. Sorry for those Italians here. If you want to. <laughs> but here it points to the fact that salvation required God's mighty power. And the reason is, is because our enemy is so strong. He's not stronger than God, but he's strong. Our sin was vast. I mean, sometimes we think of our salvation as something God just went, think, oh, no big deal. 
You know, he did it before he had his coffee in the morning or something, you know, just a little side thing. Oh, yeah, save everybody. No, this, this requires the, the whole power of the mighty God to accomplish this. But you know what? God did it. He raised it up. He did it in accordance with all the prophecies that were foretold centuries before. That's why it says in verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. All this was prophesied. Wonderful historian Edersheim found that there's more than 400, listen to this, 400 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And when you stop and you think about it, a prophecy was something that was foretold. It'd be like me saying, you know, uh, you're going to get a flat tire when you're driving to your relatives on Christmas Day. So just, I'm letting you know. Make sure you have your spare. And you're driving on Christmas Day, and you know what? You have a flat tire. It's not only the flat tire, it's the right rear tire. That's what Steve said it was going to be. That would be a prophet. That's what these prophets did. And they didn't, they didn't prophesy generally. Oh, yeah, God's just going to send a Savior. No. They said when. They said basically where. Who was going to be. All this stuff, all this detail was prophesied. And Christ fulfilled it all. Furthermore, God sent the Savior in accordance with the oath of his covenant. That's what it says in verse 72 to 73. To show his mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. See, 2,000 years before Jesus Christ was born, God sovereignly chose Abraham. He was a pagan living in the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. And he said, Abraham, you know what? I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to give your descendants the land of Canaan. And I'm going to bless all their families throughout the earth. And it's going to happen all through you. That's in Genesis chapter 12. And during his ministry, Jesus told the Jews who confronted with him, who constantly confronted him and and argued with him and contended with him because they were threatened by his presence, in John 8, 56, he says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. See, they weren't too glad to see Jesus. He was stealing their limelight because they were just pure religious people. But Jesus Christ was a descendant of Abraham in whom God's promise was fulfilled. God also raised up John the Baptist. He's the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And he did that in accordance with all the prophecies made hundreds of years before. All this just fits just perfectly. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, Malachi 3, Malachi 4, God predicted that he would send his messenger in spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way before the Messiah. So it's not just that he told that, hey, I'm going to send a son and here's how it's going to happen and everything. But he even went back and he said, I'm going to send somebody before my son comes. And I'm going to give you some details about him. Even though Zacharias and Elizabeth were humanly beyond their childbearing age, God sent his angel to promise them that they would have a son and that he would fulfill these prophecies. Verse 17 of chapter 1 of Luke, it says, and the reason it's happened is to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And my point is simply this. God did this apart from all human initiative. It's not like Zacharias and Elizabeth sat down and said, hey, why don't we plan this out? No. 
He did it apart from all human effort. He did it apart from all human merit or even ability. God planned it. He prophesied it. He carried it out. Even in spite of his servant Zacharias' doubts and inability to father a son, it still happened. The salvation God provided in Jesus Christ totally and completely comes from him. That's why we believe that we can't do anything to earn it. We can't do anything to work for it. All we can do is open our hand and receive it. And that runs kind of counterintuitive to our nature, doesn't it? Um, I remember when I lived in Park City, Utah for a year, lived there for one winter back in uh, 83, 84, after I graduated from college, and got to be a ski bum for about nine months. It was kind of neat. Worked at the, the resort there in Park City. And I remember my night job, because it was expensive to live there, my night job was a security guard at the Silver King Hotel. I think it's still there. Just five-star, beautiful place. And so I'd mosey in there about 11 o'clock, and I'd leave about 6 or 7 in the morning to go to my other job, a restaurant that I worked at during the day. And I remember uh, while I was working there, part of my job as a security guard was to go pick up people at the airport down in Salt Lake City. And obviously that time of year you have horrible weather, so they had a kind of a four-by-four big van and everything, and it was all fixed out pretty nice. So I was supposed to go down and pick up this individual from uh, the airport. And I remember one day I picked up Frank Sinatra's daughter, Nancy, and their little entourage. They were a real (laughs) trip. But this one individual, his name was Mr. Silver, and I thought, that's weird. His name is Mr. Silver. I wonder if he, and he's staying at the Silver King Hotel. <laughs> this is kind of cool. And uh, everybody was upset in the hotel that had worked there before that I got this job, that I was going to go pick this guy up, and I couldn't figure it out. And before I left, the, the lady that did the books for the hotel at night, she said, you know, his plane's getting in late, so um, you know, just make sure you're there on time. And just to let you know, he's, he can be a very good tipper, so treat him well. Like, okay. So I drive this van down, you know, Route 80 down to Salt Lake City, little sign and everything, Mr. Silver, I'm waiting at the thing. He comes out. This guy's got, like, a Captain America suit on. I mean, the weirdest thing, like tights, a cape, big ass on the thing. He's Captain Silver. That's his name. Weird. And, And I'm just thinking, it's just him, you know. He just had one suitcase. And he owned one of this hotel was part condos, part you could own these units. And he owned one of these. And so he gets, can I take him to the thing? And I'm just thinking, wow, this, how do I respond to this guy, you know? And I remember getting back to the hotel and I, I you know, got him up to the room and, and everything. And, and, you know, we didn't have much conversation. He just didn't, he spoke in the third person. I'm like, so where are you from? Oh, C- Captain Silver's uh, from San Diego. Okay, <laughs> you know, this is weird. And I remember dropping him off at his, his, the hotel door there and gave him his bag, and he just kind of said, thank you, and shut the door. And I thought, what a, you know, a jerk. No tip, nothing. And I'm walking away, and all of a sudden he opens up, and he goes, uh, excuse me, Steve. Uh, I'm like, do I call him Captain Silver, Mr. Silver? What do I say? I just said, yes. And uh, he goes, uh, what time do you get off? I said, 7 o'clock in the morning. He said, 
can you have a pot of coffee at my door at 5 o'clock with a cup and half and half? I'm like, uh, sure, I can make that happen. Thank you. Cl- slams the door. I'm like, all right. So I go down, and, and the lady reminded me, just, just be good to this guy. So the next morning, you know, I get down there and I put it on. He said, you know, don't, don't knock on the door or anything. I put the coffee up there. And I don't know if he knew I was there, whatever, slip, this envelope comes out. Okay, I guess that's for me, <laughs> you know. And it had my name on it. I thought, cool. So I'm walking away, and, and he made it a point. Don't knock on the door. So I'm walking away, and I'm going back down to the thing, and she goes, did, did he give you the envelope? Like, yeah, yeah, he gave me the envelope. Did you open it? Like, Not yet. He goes, Go ahead, open it up. And the lady said, open it up. She goes, you'll be surprised. It was like 200 bucks. Cash, $200 bills. And I'm like, whoa. She goes, treat him right. This happens all week. I'm like, really? She goes, yeah. <laughs> I mean, during the day, this guy would go out on the slopes dressed as Captain Silver. <laughs> Literally. He had silver skis. He had this cape. He had this little helmet, like with little, weird. He would give out $20 bills to all the kids. Just kind of a neat guy. He wasn't a Christian, clearly. But he, he was just, you know, kind of a nice guy. And I remember part of my day job, I worked right there at the resort, so if I had a break, I could take a couple runs. And I remember seeing him, you know, as I was going up on the thing, I thought, man, i got to catch up to him and see, you know, what's, what's he doing to all these people around him? And I do. And it was funny because the kids would take the money, and he would even give it to some adults. And, oh, no, 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 thanks. And he even had people coming up to him trying to give him something. My point is this. When someone tries to give us something just free, what do we think? We're suspect, right? It runs counterintuitive to our own ability just to receive it. It goes against the idea that somehow we deserve it. And sometimes we'll even reject it. That's how the world sometimes deals with salvation. When you say, you know what, this is a free gift. God wants you to have it. They say, wait a minute. What do I got to do? Nothing. Salvation is from the Lord. It's from God. It's apart from any merit. The Bible says that the reason he does that is so no one can boast. If you think that you can do something to save yourself or to provide for your own salvation, I'm sorry, but you don't understand what Christmas is all about. You don't understand what Christmas means. Salvation is God's doing. Not ours. Secondly, salvation is accomplished through the person of Jesus Christ. Through his name, though his name here in the text is not even mentioned, really. Specifically, in Zacharias' prophecy, his person is described. And there's no mistake about it. It says there in verse 69, the horn of salvation is from what? The house of David. It's interesting because Zacharias and Elizabeth were descended from Aaron, who was from the tribe of Levi. That's in verse 5 of chapter 1. But Jesus was described from the tribe of Judah through David in the genealogies and the Gospels. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Also, Luke, verse 76 there in chapter 1, shows that the coming Savior was none other than the Lord God in human flesh. It says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the what? The Most High. 
The Lord, who is God, is Jesus. John really recognized the divinity of Jesus when he affirmed that Jesus had a higher rank than he, because he existed before him. Now, if you stop and you look at that physically, you're going, well, wait a minute, I thought John was older than Jesus. He was by six months. Well, how could Jesus exist before John then? Because he's eternal. Jesus' existence didn't begin at the birth of Christ. At the incarnation, he existed before that, or he wouldn't be God. Zacharias refers to the Savior in verse 78 as the sunrise from on high. That's a reference to Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you know what? Jesus himself in John 8 even claimed, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus Christ is clearly the Savior who, whom Zacharias in all of Scripture is prophesying about. And as the angel told Joseph after explaining how Mary had conceived, can you imagine that? You're engaged to be wed and your bride is pregnant and you're not the father. That would be a tough situation. The angel told Joseph, in Matthew 1, 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. There's nothing special about the name Jesus in, in, as far as names go. As a matter of fact, the other day, Christy was telling me when she went to order the cake, I don't know where you ordered at Costco or Safeway, she wrote out, you know, happy birthday, Jesus. And the guy said, oh, that's great, a birthday party, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she goes, well, yeah, it's, it's for church. And she goes, oh, okay, well, I hope Jesus has a nice day or whatever. And she says, no, 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 it's, it's for church, it's Jesus, happy birthday, Jesus, not Jesus. A little mixed up there. But the point here is, is, is simply this, is that Jesus is the salvation that God accomplished, and it was accomplished through him, through the house of David. Thirdly here, salvation means forgiveness of our sins by God's mercy. That's what salvation is all about. In the earliest part of this prophecy, Zechariah speaks of salvation with reference to, really, national deliverance for Israel. In verse 71, he says that he should save us from our sin, our enemies. Verse 74, that we'll be delivered from the hand of our enemies. And that's kind of a political aspect of salvation, and that's going to be fulfilled in Christ's second coming, when he will return and defeat Israel's enemies and establish his kingdom as he rules over the earth. But once again, the Jews in Jesus' day, they, they didn't understand that. They really thought wrongly, and they thought that somehow God's salvation through the Messiah was purely political. That's why when we were going through the, the Gospel of Matthew, we could understand their thinking because they, even the disciples thought, man, he's going to go and go to Jerusalem and overturn Rome and deliver us. No, it's not going to happen now. They didn't understand that. They didn't understand the whole church age that we live in now. They thought it was going to happen all right now. So when Jesus said, and by the way, I'm going to die in Jerusalem, they thought, wait, no, <laughs> you're the Messiah. You have to d- deliver us politically. They didn't completely understand the spiritual nature of Jesus' ministry. 
And so John's ministry was intended to show Israel that salvation consisted in the forgiveness of sins. In verse 77 there, he talks about that, in the forgiveness of their sins. John preached a repentance, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And even though Israel was God's chosen people nationally, they still had to be reconciled to God because of their sin. Offerings weren't going to do it. The Bible says that the the offerings of goats and, and animals, that's not going to take away our sin. That's just a picture of Christ's sacrifice to come. And so they had to be reconciled individually through repentance and the forgiveness of their own personal sin. Because since God is holy, no, no sinner can really, you know, stand righteously in his presence. You can stand under judgment in his presence. He's just. He can't just simply forget it. When you talk about the judgment of God, you hear a lot of people explain, well, you know, I believe in a God of love. I don't think God would judge me. I don't think God would send anybody to hell. That's the whole point. See, God God is not sending us to hell. We're on our way to hell. Do we understand this? We're on our way to hell because of our sinfulness. God is, is loving because he's providing a way out. He's providing salvation. He's ordained that the penalty of our sin is death. That's what Romans 6.23 says. The wages of sin is death. But because of his tender mercy, he took that penalty of sin upon himself so that we could go free. Even John, when he announced the Messiah in John chapter 1, verse 29, he announced Jesus as the Lamb of God who what? takes away the sins of the world. He provides salvation. Zacharias brings together those references which describes those in need of God's salvation. And he says, those who sit, there in verse 79, in darkness and in the shadow of death. It's kind of a picture, you might say, of a traveler who, if you've ever been out at night and you lost your way and it was dark, one time we went camping in the woods and, you know, that was before cell phones and all that kind of stuff and the flashlight died when we were on our way to our campsite. And, I mean, you couldn't see anything. It was a clouded night. It was, I mean, it was very dark. I remember stumbling through the woods thinking, where are we going? And pretty soon you start to get fearful because you, you really get disoriented. If you've ever been in the, the caverns down there on the, in the... Uh, California there, they have these caverns, and they go down there. They used to, when you go down there, they used to take you down there, and they'd turn the light out. And it's so dark. And even though it's maybe 15 seconds at the most that the lights are out, it seems like, okay, turn them on, turn them on. After five seconds, you're kind of freaking out. You're going, man, it's really dark in here. I can't see anything. Can you imagine utter darkness for all eternity? That's what this is a picture of. They're lost in darkness. They don't know which way to go. They're afraid of death, which is always there lurking in the shadows. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to do it. They can't find their way. What do they need? They need light. They need light. 
Perhaps at Christmas time they hear that a Savior has been born. Gives them that light. Maybe they hear further that the Savior died. He was born to die, as we spoke of last week, to save his people from their sins. Gives them a little more light. But then maybe they stop and they wonder, well, you know, I don't know if I'm good enough to really earn this salvation that Christ is offering me. But then they hear the message that, you know what? No, the gospel's free. It's, it's, it's not something you can earn. God offers forgiveness of sins freely because of his tender mercy, beloved. The sun rises in its full light into their soul and he guides them into the way of peace. In verse 78, that, that word there, because of the tender mercy of our God, that word tender really refers to bowels. It's the innermost being. It's the seat of emotions. See, in the, in the, the religious sense, culturally back then, they wouldn't think of, you know, uh, the head, the brain. They would think of the gut as the seat of emotions. And see, many people today think erroneously that God is mean, that he's some old man up there in heaven with a big stick, and he's harsh, and he's waiting to, to strike them down because of their sin. See, Jesus portrayed the heavenly father as a father in the parable of the prodigal son. And how was that portrayed? When he saw his son from a distance, what did he do? It says that he felt compassion for him. That's the same word there, bowels. It's down here. It's in the gut. And it says that he ran and he embraced his son and he kissed him. He didn't scold him for running away and spending his inheritance and doing all this wrong stuff. No, he welcomed them back. See, that's the tender mercy that God has for us today. You must understand that God must judge all sin or he would no longer be just. He can't just brush it aside. At judgment, he will pour out for all eternity his wrath on all sinners who have not put their faith and trust in Christ. But God is not only just, beloved, he's also merciful. And the Bible says because of his great love and mercy that he has, it really caused him to send his son to bear the penalty that we deserve to bear. And here this morning, if even like the prodigal son, if you repent, if you turn from your sin and you come to Christ, you come to the Savior, you know what? I guarantee you, he will forgive you. This isn't a Ponzi scheme. This isn't, you know, the shells on the table kind of a thing. Oh, you know, we're just trying to get you into religion. No, that's not the purpose. He will forgive you completely and you will know and understand his tender mercy and his love. Years ago, there was a man named Dr. Bernardo, and he ran a London orphanage. He was approached by a dirty, ragged little boy who asked to be admitted into the orphanage. And the doctor looked at him and he said, but my boy, I don't know you. What do you have to recommend you? And the boy was not only needy, but he was also bright. 
And he quickly held up before Dr. Bernardo his ragged coat. And with a confident little voice, he said, If you please, sir, I thought these here would be all I needed to recommend me. And the doctor caught him up in his arms and took him in. And because that was truly all he needed to recommend him was his rags. You know, that's a picture for us. Do you need forgiveness? Then the, the Bible says, you know what? Bring, bring the rags of all your sinfulness and give it to Christ. He, pour, he bore the penalty in his body on the cross. And because of his tender mercy, God says he will pardon you. He will pardon all who seek forgiveness. Salvation means the forgiveness of our sins by God's mercy. There's no such thing as a sin that is greater than the tender mercy of our God. So salvation is God's doing. It's accomplished through Christ. And the sunrise from on high, and it, it means that the, the forgiveness of sins by God's mercy. But the last thing here is salvation results in a life of holy service to God. Zacharias says in verse 74 to 75, being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. See, God saves us with a purpose. He doesn't just save us to sit around and be religious. Contrary to what a lot of people think, salvation is not primarily about us and it's not about our happiness. The Christian church is full of people who come to Jesus for what Jesus can do for them. How he can meet their felt needs. I want a happy family. I want a successful career. I want this. I want that. And maybe if I add God to the equation and Christ to the equation and come to church to the equation, somehow God will just miraculously make all this happen and I'll be happy, happy, happy in Jesus. I mean, the Christian life is a blessed, happy life. It's full of joy. It's full of goodness. It's full of gladness. But God doesn't save us so that we can just simply live happily ever after and ignore the needs of others around us. He saves us so that we might glorify Him. In other words, He saves us so that we might make Him look good. It's a simple way of saying it. As a Christian Hopefully you're full of God's joy. And as that joy spills over, it, it touches other people's lives. It overflows in, in service of others. I mean, to be honest, people who think that they're saved and only live for themselves and their own happiness and neglect the needs of others, I'm sorry, they're deceived. I don't believe those people are truly saved. Because we don't see that in the life of Christ. We're called Christians. We're to model Christ. When our lives become so focused on ourselves that we don't care about anybody else, that's, that's a time for a gut check. You need to stop and you need to go back to the basics of your faith. Because true salvation, as far as I read it in Scripture, always results in a holy life given over to serving our gracious God who has granted deliverance and salvation to us from the bondage of sin. This time of year, you go to Safeway, you go to any mall, and you see the little people out there reading, ringing the bells, you know, the Salvation Army officers. 
Years ago, Salvation Army Officer Captain Shaw went to India as a medical missionary to help a leopard colony, and his eyes welled up with tears as he saw three lepers in front of him. Their hands and their feet were bound by, by chains that had cut into their diseased flesh. Shaw turned to the guard and said, Can you unfashion these chains from these individuals? And the guard said, It's not safe. These men are not just lepers, they're dangerous criminals. Shaw kind of appealed again and said, I'll be responsible, they're suffering enough. He took the keys and tenderly removed the shackles and he treated their bleeding ankles and their bleeding wrists. About two weeks later, Captain Shaw had his first misgivings about freeing these criminals. He had to make an overnight trip and he feared leaving his wife and children alone. His wife insisted that she wasn't afraid God would protect her. So the doctor left. And the next morning when Mrs. Shaw went to the door, she was startled to see these three criminals lying on her steps. One explained, We know that the doctor go. We stay here all night so no harm come to you. That was their response to the doctor's act of love for them, to serve him freely out of gratitude. And you know what? That should be our response. God has freely saved us from the bondage of sin. And it's all because he sent his son to take on a human body, to live a perfect life, to die on a cruel cross, to become sin for us. That should motivate us to give our lives in holy service to him. Well, Zacharias' prophecy tells us the meaning of Christmas, that God sent us a Savior in the person of Jesus Christ. And you know what? We were really inadequate to be able to explain that to you. Somehow, God himself must break through if you would grasp it. I don't have a formula. I can't say just pray this prayer. I can't say do this, do that. God does that work. But I know that God answers the prayer of someone who's crying out in need, repenting of their sin, turning from their sin, and turning to the Savior. Close with this illustration. During the Christmas season of 1879, an agnostic reporter in Boston saw three little girls standing in front of a store window full of toys. One of them was blind. Coming closer, he heard the other two try to describe to the little blind kid some of these things that they were seeing, these toys. He said he had never thought of how difficult it would be to explain what something looks like to someone who has never been able to see it. That incident became the basis for a newspaper story. Two weeks later, the same agnostic attended a meeting conducted by the famous evangelist D.L. Moody. His purpose was to catch Moody in some inconsistency while he was preaching. But he was greatly surprised to hear Moody use his newspaper account of the three children to illustrate a spiritual truth. Here's what Moody said. Just as the blind girl couldn't visualize the toys... So a lost person can't see Christ in all his glory. 
He said that God must open the eyes of those without Christ so that the person will acknowledge his sin and trust in the Savior in humble faith. And that day God opened that newspaper man's eyes and he saw his own need and he discovered for himself the truth of what Moody was preaching about. If you've ever, if you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says that you're sitting in darkness You're sitting in your sin. You're sitting in the shadow of death. But I want you to take away from this message this morning the simple fact that God has visited you. He's visited you with the good news that he is merciful to sinners, that he is willing to forgive. And I want you to ask him to shine into your hearts and to give you guidance as you find your way, the way of peace to the Savior. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. I know if you turn to Christ, you will understand his tender mercies and that he will forgive all of your sins because the true meaning of Christmas is simply that that God sent us a Savior in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the example of Zacharias and the prophecies that were fulfilled. Lord, I pray that as we approach the birth of your son, the celebration of your son, Lord, that I know the world clutters everything up with commercialism and and everything else, but Lord, as Christians, we have a duty to go out into this lost and dying world and lift up the light of Christ. Allow people to understand why we celebrate, why people are decorating their houses with lights, why the malls are filled with shoppers, why radio stations are playing different songs this time of the year with a focus on Christmas, on the the birth of your son. We have a duty to explain to them that you visited us and that salvation has been provided for through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for any here who's yet to put their faith and trust in Christ. Lord, this may be the day that they cry out. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to make sense of these words I'm hearing. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm in need. And Father, if what this man says is true, I can't do anything about it. You have to do it for me. You, you come to God with that humble attitude. He will perform a miracle in you that you've never experienced before. The forgiveness of your sin. It says he transforms your heart. He makes you a new person. Old things pass away. Everything becomes new. Father, as Christians, I just pray that we'd be reminded to to keep the gospel the central focus, keep Christ the central focus of our, our holiday celebrations. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.